I'd worked in all sorts of places, all over Europe in different languages, singing, acting, sweeping the stage, working in rep, working in the theatre. In other words, learning, something that few, sadly, few young actors and actresses are prepared to do these days. So many of them are stars before they even make their first film. And you know when you look at them on the screen that they are looking in a mirror, absolutely in a mirror. And it's the uh, beginning of a lifelong romance. And their hand is out underneath the mirror, out of shot. Because that's what they want, rich. Mm. To be rich and famous immediately, which is terribly sad and extremely dangerous. The most dangerous thing that a young actor or actress can do is to believe their own publicity. Mm. Because shelf life, 10 years, mm. if you're a star, 20 or 22 or 3 or 4, if you haven't got it, mm. if you've got it, you've got the right instincts, the right imagination, the right powers of invention, if you have something behind you, some sort of foundations of experience and versatility, that's fine. You will go on. You will last. But if you haven't, and maturity has not got these qualities, and you always play the same part, basically, or, basically, or slight variations on it, and that's all you can do, you'll be through in ten years or even five when the public will eventually say, well, you know, they're always doing the same thing. Mm. And the moment that's, that happens is the beginning of the end. You start at the top of the ladder. There's only one way to go. I saw it on Linden Street. Hello, and welcome to I Saw It on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding and appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater as we once again dig up a fun cinematic relic from the past. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for joining us. Now, this isn't your standard film review. Rather, it's a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection, with some background thrown in on the actors, information on the director, and if I'm doing my job, perhaps you'll get a half-amusing story out of me. Fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers. So, if you'd like to be surprised, please give the film a viewing before you listen to us. If you like us, and hey, I would hope that you do, please recommend this podcast to a friend, give us a favorable review, subscribe. This week, we're doing something a little different, though. We're kicking off the month of July with our newest theme, Tall, Dark, and Gruesome. That's going to be our selection of some fantastic Christopher Lee features. This week, we thought it might be kind of interesting to get to know the man himself. And so, we invite you to sit back, relax, pop a beverage, and arch an eyebrow in quiet contemplation as we dig in to the life and the times of a film legend. Join us! When I was a kid, around the age of six to seven, 
I was very much into Dracula. I dressed up as the Count for Halloween. I always was down to popping a set of faux fangs into my mouth, and I would often try to see the old films whenever I could catch them on the seemingly constant Saturday afternoon reruns that would be available on some of the local UHF stations that were still holding out strong in the late 80s and early 90s. Except, well, for as much as I was interested in the old Count, I would keep being perpetually disappointed. You see, at that same time, I was taking monster books out from the local library, and I would get to see that there were all these, quote, cool vampire movies available for me to peruse, and ones that seemed to have a crazy, red-eyed, bare-fanged, bloodied vampire appearing in full color on the pages before me. But whenever I would manage to catch the films, all I seemingly got was the slick-back stylings of good old Bella Lugosi. Now, don't get me wrong, I love the Universal Monster films as well, but this was not the vampire that I was signing up for. And it was causing me some real confusion. I wanted this seemingly rage-filmed vampire. And, you know, with all the hissing, the bloody dramatic flair. And, in hindsight, what I really wanted was the guy I kept seeing in these photos. Christopher Lee. Now, Lee is something different to everybody. To baby boomers, he's this horror icon. To the late Gen Xers, he's a James Bond villain who did a bunch of B-movies and then did comedies. And for the millennials and forward, he's simultaneously a dark wizard and a Sith Lord in a bunch of science fiction and fantasy classics. So who exactly was this man who had such range, such reach? Well. We may as well get to the bottom of this, and start from the start. One cannot help to think that great things were going to come from a young Christopher Lee. Due to his pedigree, his schooling, his work ethic, it would not have been beyond the pale to assume that he would have been a professor, a diplomat, or a politician. But life seemingly had other plans for him. Christopher Frank Carandini Lee was born in Belgravia, London on May 27, 1922, the second of two children born to Geoffrey Trollope and Estelle Marie Lee. Geoffrey was a decorated war hero, a lieutenant colonel and a sharpshooter with the 60th King's Royal Rifle Corps, who had fought in the Second Boer War in what is now present-day South Africa and Lesotho, and he would later distinguish himself at the Battle of the Somme during the First World War. Lee's mother, Estelle, was an Italian contessa of the Carandini di Sarzano family, whose coat of arms can be traced back to the 12th century when the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick Barbarossa granted the entire family their title. Estelle could trace the family's lineage all the way back to Charlemagne, or that would be King Charles the Great, the King of the Franks in the early 9th century, and she could count among her relations the famous Borgias. The Carandinis had been forced to relocate 
to England from Italy due to political persecution, and thus Estelle was highly sought after, both for the fact that she was a young beauty in her day and for her familial connections, connections that granted her and her future children access to European aristocracy. Their first child, Zandra, was born in 1917, and young Christopher came along five years later. And unfortunately for him, his mother often would say to his face, he was a mistake. For his part, Lee regarded his father as a good man, a dedicated regular soldier with a backbone of steel. Yet in his personal life, with his family, he was easygoing, good-natured, and gentle. Jeffrey was an avid sportsman who retired early from military life in 1919 at the age of 39 and dedicated himself to a life of leisure, playing golf, cricket, hunting. Unfortunately, young Christopher's early life was upended when his father, after 16 years of marriage to his mother, left the family, which was later revealed to have stemmed from a long-term gambling problem. At the age of four, Lee was left with the memory of a father he idolized and was crushed when they ultimately divorced by the time he was six. Estelle took her children to stay with family in Wengan, Switzerland, before returning to London, where she remarried a prominent banker of the day, Harcourt George St. Croix Rose. Interestingly, from that union, Lee became acquainted with his new step-cousin, Ian Fleming, who was 14 years his senior. The remarriage gave some stability to life, but as with most British boys from families of some means, Lee was sent off to preparatory school, the boarding school at Summerfield's which was an institute one would want to attend if you had the goal to go on to the prestigious Eton College. Lee himself was a decent student, especially in the arts, but he was weak at math, and so he missed the opportunity to qualify as a King's Scholar, and that would have given him a full ride to go on to attend Eton. Instead, he qualified as an Open Don Scholar, which essentially meant that he met the criteria to receive an honorary award, but he was going to have to pay his own way if he wanted to attend Eton. Rubbing salt in the wound, he missed that distinction between a full-ride scholarship and a basically a meritorious award by one point. While his mother Estelle lobbied hard for her son to continue on to Eton, stepdad Rose was not willing to pay the bill for Lee's education, and so the young man found himself instead attending Wellington College in Berkshire, where he distinguished himself by further earning scholarships in classical studies. In addition to learning to read ancient Greek and Latin, Lee would go on to become a polyglot, mastering French, Spanish, Italian, and German, and he was considered to have a passing knowledge of Swedish, Greek, and Russian by the time he left school. In spite of being a bright student, Lee was not much into sports, although he did have competence when it came to fencing which would actually prove to be very useful to him later in life. What's more being it was the mid-1930s, 
and he started to chafe under the military drilling and the weapons training that he received during his time at Wellington. He was often frequently disciplined in the traditional school corporal punishment for the day, such as being caned for his insubordinates. By the time he reached the end of his penultimate year at Wellington, at the age of 17, Lee was forced to drop out of school. His stepfather had gone bankrupt, and his mother had decided she was going to leave the man to boot. Without the means to continue on his education, he would be forced to look for work to support himself and help his family. He ended up in London, working for United States Lines, a transatlantic cargo shipping company, as an office clerk. When the Second World War did break out, Lee himself was unsure of how to proceed. He knew that he would most likely be drafted in the following year, but he was still too young to serve. You needed to be 18 at the time. So he decided to take on his service in his own terms if possible. And with a group of foolhardy friends from school, they all ended up volunteering together to join the Finnish army to battle the Soviets during the so-called Winter War of 1939. The first Soviet-Finnish war was kicked off with Soviet forces invading Finland on November 30th, 1939, a full three months before officially World War II itself had kicked off, with the USSR attempting to invade Finland with their own version of what would be the German Blitzkrieg strategy. Except they didn't anticipate their Finnish foes actually fighting back so hard, which inflicted massive casualties amongst the Russians, fighting the invaders to a standstill just three months later. Lee and his friends made it all the way to the border, where they were placed on guard duty, but since none of them had ski training, which was necessary for traveling and battling in the snow of the polar regions, they were politely asked to head home. Lee ended up returning back to work in London, and he stayed there for another year, on hand to witness his father pass away from complications of a bilateral pneumonia infection at the age of 62 in March of 1941. Now, at the age of 19, Lee still was gripped by a desire to contribute in his own way, and he didn't want to follow in the footsteps of his father and grandfather by joining the army. No. Lee, instead, volunteered to become a pilot with the British Royal Air Force. After getting through basic training, Lee was sent to the British colony of Rhodesia in southern Africa, which is now modern-day Zimbabwe to continue on with his flight school instruction, training with de Havilland Tiger Moth biplanes. He found the process exhilarating, and he loved the feeling that flying gave him. He was actually a rather skilled pilot, but before his final training exercise that would allow him to have solo flights, Lee found himself grounded due to frequent bouts of terrible headaches and blurry vision. The medical officer on hand ended up diagnosing Lee with having a failed optic nerve, and he found himself banned from flying ever again, crushing a dream of his. In hindsight, though, this course of action probably ended up saving his life. The RAF pilot attrition rates during the war were staggering, 
Bomber Command alone had nearly lost 45% of its 125,000 aircrew members during the conflict. Still, Lee was devastated by this turn of events, and he ended up traveling around between air bases, taking in some of the sights that the area had to offer, before he felt the need to at least make something happen for himself. He applied to join RAF Intelligence, and his background in languages, as well as his notable work ethic, got greenlit by his superiors, and Lee soon found himself transferred up to the command center at the Suez Canal Zone in Egypt. He became attached to the 260th RAF Squadron as an intelligence officer helping coordinate the efforts to battle across northern Africa and push in to secure Libya, before being transferred to the Long Range Desert Group, which was a covert unit that was created to gather intelligence behind enemy lines during the desert campaign. Lee saw action, coming close to being killed when the base he was at in Tunisia was bombed by the Germans in 1943. He did take part in the Allied invasion of Sicily, and was promoted for his work at the end of the Sicilian campaign to being a flying officer. That would be like the U.S. Air Force equivalent of being a first lieutenant. During this time that Lee was sidelined with malaria, he ended up moving to a Carthaginian hospital for treatment. It was remote, it was boring, and Lee, for his part, found himself earning a lot of favor with superior officers when he was stationed there, because he was able to help quell a bunch of unrest amongst the Soviet pilots who were on loan to them for operations. He was able to speak Russian, and to assuage their frustrations with lack of communication from home. Lee found himself on loan out to the army and was quickly embedded with the 8th Indian Division during the Battle of Monte Cassino. Like all crazy young men, during this time of incredible conflict and strife, Lee did find time for himself to do interesting things, like where he made time to climb the famous Mount Vesuvius while on leave at Naples, a feat that he accomplished on March 15, 1944 only to have the volcano erupt three days later on March 18th, an occurrence that ended up destroying almost 80 Allied aircraft stationed at the nearby Pompeii airfield at Terenzino. During the final push of the campaign, Lee again luckily evaded death twice, first surviving a plane crash at San Angelo, and then again proving to be extraordinarily lucky when he tripped over live ordnance without setting it off. By November of 1944, Lee was promoted yet again to being a flight lieutenant. That would be like the U.S. rank of being a captain. And he was posted to Air Force headquarters, where he initially was tasked with preparing for an Allied assault on the fabled Alpine Redoubt. It was a plan that never came to fruition. It ended up being a bunch of German smoke and mirrors. Instead, Lee got posted to Vienna, where he was attached to the Special Operations Executive. He basically became a precursor to what would become the British Special Air Services, or the SAS. They're special forces that are used for highly classified operations in the field. Again, since Lee was a polyglot, his abilities made him very valuable to the Central Registry of War Criminals and Security Suspects, otherwise known as CROCAS. While the war was technically over for the regulars, 
Lee found himself now attached to be part of an elite team of Nazi hunters, attempting to find specific targets before they had a chance to melt away in the post-war confusion. We'll touch on this again later, but for his part, Lee was involved in some highly classified work that saw him hunt down suspects, lead interrogations, and visit concentration camps. During his time in the war, Lee was proud of his service, but he left it seemingly aged beyond his years. He would often reflect on it later in life, both on how it sobered him to the aspect of life itself and how it influenced his own career. Lee was quoted to having said, I've seen many men die right in front of me, so many in fact that I've become almost hardened to it. Having seen the worst that human beings can do to each other, the results of torture, mutilation, and seeing someone blown to pieces by a bomb, you develop a kind of a shell. But you had to. You had to. Otherwise, we never would have won. Lee's RAF service ended officially in 1946 which left the young man now very unsure of his future. He'd never finished his schooling, he didn't want to go back to work in an office, and even though they wanted him back and were willing to give him both a promotion and a raise, like so many men coming back from the war, the notion of continuing to sit and work in an office environment was stifling to Lee. He had a good enough grasp of classics to go on and teach if he so desired, but he hated the regimen that was part of the British schooling system and what he would end up being locked into. During his time with the Italian campaign, he was able to spend a good portion of his downtime getting acquainted with a number of his family members, including his second cousin, Count Niccolo Carandini, who during the war was a freedom fighter for the Italian resistance. Now, in the post-war period, Carandini was made the Italian ambassador to Great Britain, and on a lunch outing with his cousin, the older man ended up suggesting to the handsome youth, why don't you go on and become an actor? Lee found himself struck and intrigued with the idea all at the same time. While he had done some minor plays during his school days, he had never really thought about it before. His mother, for her part, hated the idea. Her son was going to be some sort of common entertainer, which I think personally drove Lee to pursue it even harder. Although he did point out to his own mother that her own great-grandmother had been a well-respected opera singer back in the day and she was forced to begrudgingly accept that this was the path that her son found himself on. Through his cousin's connections, Lee ended up getting his foot in the door, talking to a number of film producers, and while they all repeatedly deemed him as being way too tall, he still got hired on to be a contract player for the Two Cities Film Production Company. That was a subsidiary of the larger Rank Organization which at this point in history owned Pinewood Studios, Denim Film Studios, Ealing Studios, Lime Grove Studios, and Ilsington Studios, as well as a chain of theaters, some general film distributors, and it gave them access to the UK distribution rights for the Universal Pictures background library. So if Universal Pictures shot a film, they'd be the ones showing it. 
Lee was put through what was affectionately called the Rank Charm School. That was the informal name for the organized acting school, the Company of Youth, which was mainly designed to groom a bunch of the young talent for roles in pictures. But it really had mixed results as an organization, and eventually it would end up shutting down in the early 50s, but not before a number of actors and entertainers like Lee, Diana Doors, Joan Collins, Joe Ireland, Gene Simmons, Barbara Steele, Petula Clark, Patrick McGugan, and Maxwell Reed all came out of it. Lee found himself contracted for seven years, but he would end up staying a background bit player for over a decade, fighting continually against his height being considered a detriment on screen. He did manage to make a number of small on-screen appearances, but his first real great speaking role would come when he shot Horatio Hornblower R.N. across from Gregory Peck. Lee had a small role as a Spanish captain, and of course he got to fence and duel with Peck. His ability to speak Spanish and fence got him noticed by Douglas Fairbanks Jr., who had come across to Europe to star in his ongoing television series, Douglas Fairbanks Presents, and Lee was thus offered various roles on that show. He filmed Moulin Rouge in 1952 for director John Huston, and he got to go on and work steady as a regular character actor. During those next five years, Lee would go on to be in 22 different films, and he would have reoccurring television roles in over 10 different shows. It was during this same time that Lee began seriously seeing a Swedish countess, Henriette von Rosen, a woman who he had met as a young actor out on the town in the nightclubs of Stockholm. Lee proposed to her, but in a comical meet-the-parents sort of situation, he was forced to continually present his bona fides to her relentless father, Count Fritz von Rosen who demanded that the couple postpone their engagement for over a year, which would allow the Count to keep checking up on the actor. Lee was forced to be interviewed by a litany of contacts that the Count had at London. He also found himself tailed by private investigators, and he was forced on multiple occasions to provide character references for himself. But the ones he did come up with were from people like Douglas Fairbanks Jr., director John Bolting, and famed British Interpol agent Joe Jackson, who all went on to vouch for Lee as an upstanding gentleman. Von Rosen, though, was still not convinced, and he tasked the actor with getting permission of the King of Sweden himself to go on to marry his daughter. Although, oddly enough, Lee had actually met King Gustav VI when he had starred in an adaptation of Hans Christian Andersen's stories for a television production in 1955. And much to old Pop's displeasure, the king fully endorsed the union between Lee and von Rosen. What ruined it? <laughs> Lee actually being a gentleman. That's what did it. Good night. James! Aren't we a little overdressed, good night? I like a girl in a bikini. No concealed weapons. Miss Goodnight, please. Mr. Bond. Honestly, Lee had had some legitimate concerns about the union. He hadn't yet made it as an actor. 
And with the volatility of the profession and with Von Rosen's less than eager family in the mix, to be fair to the poor young woman, he voluntarily ended their engagement, noting that he never wanted to make a poor wife of her. And for Von Rosen's part, she agreed she would not like to be one. Here's the thing. Then, it happened. For the first time, Lee's height was deemed to be an asset. Hammer Film Productions, whose history we'll get into on a later episode, was experiencing a revival, and they were shooting remakes of famous horror monsters, basically culled from the classic Universal Pictures playbook, although this time they were doing them in a bunch of Technicolor glory. And what's more, they were including shocking things like blood and low-cut décolletage to boot. And so, in 1957, Hammer found itself filming The Curse of Frankenstein, with Lee cast to play the monster, based solely on his height. And standing at 6 feet 5 inches, he wasn't even as tall as the producers had hoped. They had wanted actor Bernard Breslau of the Carry On films to show up, because he was 6 foot 7 inches. It was going to be the role that would change the course of his career, for the next two decades at least. And it also introduced him to the man whom Lee would go on to call his best friend in life, actor Peter Cushing. Interestingly, Lee and Cushing had already starred in some of the same films, but they had never properly been introduced. They were both in 1948's Hamlet, and again, they were in 1952's Moulin Rouge, but they were both in completely separate scenes, so they had never met in person until they wound up shooting The Curse of Frankenstein together. The meeting was actually quite memorable. Lee was officially cast as the monster, and Cushing was cast as the deranged Baron Victor Frankenstein. Lee ended up bursting into Cushing's dressing room, holding a copy of the script, and angrily ranting about how the creature in this film doesn't have any lines. Cushing looked up and then dryly responded, You're lucky. I've read the script which diffused the situation and ended up causing peals of laughter between the two men. They were best friends going forward. Indeed, during the heyday of Hammer alone, Lee and Cushing would make 22 films together. 1958 saw Lee film Corridors of Blood with character actor Boris Karloff, a man he actually held in high esteem and who he would consider to be a friend over the next few years. And they had great fun in this film where Karloff played a sympathetic resurrectionist in 1840s London, basically a physician who was attempting to unlock the key to providing safe surgeries by way of using anesthesia. Hammer would come calling again and have Lee put his own spin on a remake of Dracula that came out that same year, starring in The Horror of Dracula. For his part, Lee viewed it both as a major milestone in his career and something that would honestly keep coming back to haunt him. Lee played Dracula with a sense of majesty and dignity, trying to create him as a char character who was tragic. A man who had great qualities of leadership, but also had intellect, sex appeal. But 
one who was feared for these very same qualities due to his monstrous nature. Lee wanted to stick closer to that original Stoker material, and he worked hard not to make the same mistakes that he felt that Bela Lugosi had made when he was filming his own Universal films. So what you got here is Lee doing a lot of hissing with blood running down both sides of his face and his eyes bugging out blood red. The audiences loved it, as did a young Chris when he saw it back in the day. And the film was wildly successful, and Lee was fast becoming a known horror star. This is the story of Dracula, a creature who destroys all whom he touches. Dracula the terrifying, the feared, who sleeps in the tombs of the dead by day and arises at night to inflict his terror upon the innocent and the unsuspecting. You must help me. You must. You're my only hope. You must. I'll help you. I promise. Lucy, the sister you loved. It's only a shell, possessed and corrupted by the evil of Dracula. How do you destroy a fiend who has so far proven himself indestructible? Those who come to end his reign of terror stay to become his victims. Castle Dracula is summoned here in Klausenberg. Will you tell me how I get there? You ordered a meal, sir. As an innkeeper, it's my duty to serve you. When you've eaten, I ask you to go and leave us in peace. This is the doctor who dares to challenge the vampire Dracula. This is the anguished man who fears for the lives of his beloved, the girl who is his sister, and the one that is his wife. Dracula, the bedeviled master of all that is evil. Nineteen fifty-nine saw Lee cast to play opposite of Cushing in two more films. First, showing up as Sir Henry Baskerville's opposite of Cushing in the role of Sherlock Holmes in the remake of The Hound of the Baskervilles. Lee was thrilled that the role allowed him to do more. He was a refined gentleman now, and he relished the contrast from the last two monsters that he played, although he would be the first to note that his version of Sir Baskerville's was far more refined and eclectic than the boorish, dull, and bad-tempered character that showed up in Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's original short story. He did, though, have one issue on set. 
There were several scenes shot where spiders were used, and Lee himself was deathly afraid of them, not enjoying the time that he had to spend near the large bird-eating tarantulas that were used for this film. He refused to let the Wranglers place the arachnids near his neck and face during his scenes, and he agreed only to have them put on his shoulder which resulted in Lee turning green and sweating on camera during the filming. He was lauded as giving a brilliant performance, but after the scene was done, he turned around and told the crew, that wasn't acting, I was terrified. That same year, Lee again was tapped by Hammer to show up in another horror remake, this time cast as the role of Karis in their Technicolor version of The Mummy, which again saw him opposite of Cushing. Lee would later comment that this was actually one of the more difficult roles that he had in his life, as they plastered bandages across his face, which severely limited his breathing so much so that the only air he was taking in was coming from the slits in the costuming around his eyes. Not to mention the sheer physicality of the performance. Lee was crashing through doors, breaking glass windows, and carrying many an actress across muddy swamp sets, all of whom Lee described as being pure dead weight due to their passed out performances. Things though were picking up in his private life too. The following year, Lee was introduced to Danish artist and former fashion model Brigitte Gitte Kroki by a mutual friend in 1960. Lee was smitten by her, and the two would go on to marry the following year in March of 1961. Their only child, daughter Christina Erika Carandini Lee, would be born in 1963. Lee was able to get steady work now, as studios knew what he was capable of, yet he still faced the problem of generally being typecast. In 1962, he found himself auditioning for a role in the ensemble war epic The Longest Day, but he was shockingly turned down as he, quote, didn't look like a military man. Seriously? From 1965 to 1973, he would go on to play the role of Dracula in another seven films, six of which would be specifically for Hammer, and all of them would be done under protest, or, as Lee would describe it, emotional blackmail. He would refuse to take the job, and his agent would either call him to tell him, hey, we already sold the film overseas, or he would refuse to take the job and then the studio heads would phone him to point out all of the good hardworking crew members that would be put out of work if he didn't commit to playing the role again. After the second outing in 1965's Dracula Prince of Darkness, Lee gave up speaking altogether thinking that the dialogue written in the Dracula scripts was just terrible, so instead he opted to hiss and emote. Still, other roles remained. While it's sort of hard to picture and justify this now, I, I will contend and go to the mat, they are good films still. Lee did Yellowface and portrayed the villainous character of Fu Manchu over three separate films, two, at least for the day, great acclaim and success. 
he would go on to portray the charismatic Russian holy man in the Hammer horror film Rasputin, the Mad Monk, in 1966. That's going to be a future film for sure. He starred in the adaptation of the best-selling author Dennis Wheatley's novel The Devil Rides Out, portraying a man attempting to help rescue a young woman from a devil-worshipping cult. And we are actually going to be covering that film this month. In 1968, as well as starring in Scream and Scream Again in 1970 with Peter Cushing and Vincent Price. Along the way, though, he did end up having a few, let's call them cinematic missteps. Films that he would look back on with regret or feel that he was taken advantage of. Such as in 1970, when he starred in an adaptation of the Marquis de Sade story, Philosophy in the Boudoir, which would be released stateside as Eugenie, the story of her journey into perversion. Lee was cast as the narrator, Dolmans, who has no actual participation in the film's plot itself. Thus, Lee was purposely kept in the dark by director Jess Franco on what was actually being shot. Lee found himself horrified when the final version of the film came out and his scenes had been edited together to make it seem as if he was taking part in filming a number of softcore pornographic scenes. And once the actor found out, he raised hell about it. It would be the only picture of his career that he would demand his name be removed from the title and it remained a sore point at least for a number of years. That same year, he got burned on another Jess Franco film that he starred in with a similar problem. Lee actually loved his role in 1970's The Bloody Judge, where he played Judge George Jeffries, who was Lord Chief Justice of England, who harshly presided over the Duke of Monmouth's rebellion against the government of King Charles II in 1685. Lee gave a great performance, and he had a lot of fun with it, but... When the film was released, Lee realized they had cut in a large amount of exploitative violence and torture to the film, which the gentleman thought cheapened the end product and disappointed him to great end. He did have some bright spots, though. He did in 70 film The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, where he had a lot of fun playing Mycroft Holmes, the detective policeman brother, who is involved in a rather strange case with Sherlock, one that involves a beautiful woman and, of course, the Loch Ness Monster, because, you know, you gotta. 1971 saw Lee film a Western movie, Hanny Calder, with Raquel Welch, Robert Culp, and Ernest Borgnine, a film that I must say was almost selected for last month's revenge theme. It's a great one. That's where he plays an English gunsmith who is hired to craft a special weapon for a woman seeking vengeance. For his part, Lee took great delight in playing an exiled ex-Confederate soldier who is now living in Mexico, and he was thrilled that he got to be in his first Western. 1972 saw him film The Horror Express, which is a loose adaptation of the short story Who Goes There by John W. Campbell Jr. Thus, it's its own version of The Thing yet set on a moving train. And of course, he got to do this one with Cushing, coming along to play a rival scientist, and the two men struggle to stop a killer creature who stalks the train cars. It's a lot of fun. 
1973 saw him star in The Creeping Flesh, as well as The Wicker Man, which is going to be one of this month's episodes as well. And The Three Musketeers. For the latter, Lee was marvelously pleased with his role as Rochefort, and he would go on to play the character again in the 1974 sequel that he was filmed, stating, This, this is a tremendous picture. I thought in advance it would be enormously successful, and I feel very strongly that this is the kind of film that should be made as often as possible. It's pure entertainment. It's complete escapism. You have brave, noble, courageous men. Beautiful, scheming, voluptuous, delightful women. You have a king, a duke, a cardinal, professional assassins, swords and swordplay, horses, ambuscades, and a queen and a court. Everything that people used to go and see in the films of the 30s and 40s. By this point, Lee had done so much that he was being selected to be featured on the show This Is Your Life in 1973. Studded cast here tonight is another special pal of yours, Oliver Reed. <laughs> Oliver, you played uh, Matters in that film, but it wasn't by any means the first time that you'd worked with Christopher. No, it wasn't. I think Christopher um, really worked for us because um, in the old days when I first worked for Hammer, I used to s sit outside. Um, uh, an air terminal in Cromwell Road. He, he he picked us up and he used to charge us five shillings each Makes a good to go story. down to go down to Hammer Studios. It'd be much more now. And five shillings back <laughs> in an old white Mercedes and constantly sing, um, "I'm a dear a female dear." <laughs> and, 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 then, and then he used to knock us and say, "Of course, you know, dear boy, I want to be an opera singer." Want to be? I had been. <laughs> Thank you very much, Oliver. Cheers. Thank you. nineteen seventy four, Lee was cast as the ruthless yet refined hitman Francisco Scaramanga, the titular character in the James Bond film The Man with the Golden Gun, starring opposite of Roger Moore. And this allowed him to be a part of the franchise that his step cousin, Ian Fleming, had so wanted him to be a part of so many years prior. Fleming had originally wanted Lee to star as Doctor No. But that was something that never quite came about. Lee enjoyed the role, but he was rather wistful about the whole affair, noting that Fleming died a decade earlier in 1964 from complications brought on by a heart attack and was not alive to see him star. 1976 saw Lee shoot the action thriller Killer Force, which was also known as Diamond Mercenaries. It was a fun mess of a film, and it actually has a great cast. You have Telly Savalas, Peter Fonda, Hugh O'Brien, O.J. Simpson, and Maud Adams here. Lee felt it was a mess of a film, but he had a lot of fun playing out in the desert and shooting it. And he was, though, disappointed when they cut out a large amount of his performance and kept a lot of what he considered to be rubbish. He followed that up, starring in the last film that Hammer would make, at least back in the day, To the Devil, a Daughter, with Richard Widmark, Dellum Elliott, and Natasha Kinski, and we're also going to be covering that film this month as well. Time marched on as it does. 
Lee was 55, and he wanted to avoid being further typecast as being that stock British horror actor. And in spite of the attempts that he had made shooting 10 films in a variety of different genres from both 74 to 77, he felt that the only roles he was being offered going forward were for horror films, where he would either play the monster or he would play the scientist attempting to stop the monster. Lee noted in an interview with The Telegraph back in 2011 that both Richard Widmark and famed director Billy Wilder had told him separately they should go ahead and have Lee move to the United States. Come to Hollywood, you're going to get offered better gigs. Wanting himself to be more mainstream and wanting to be a part of bigger budgeted pictures, Lee did just that, and in 1977, he relocated his family to the United States. Now, it's not like Lee had a renaissance. He had never gone away. But in the United States, Lee got a fresh appraisal, and it did see him get a chance to have larger roles in, in a variety of films. He kicked off his first big American picture with the universal film Airport 77, which was the third film of that series. Once again, you have an ensemble cast, Jack Lemmon, Lee Grant, Joseph Cotton, Olivia de Havilland, Darren McGavin, M. Emmett Walsh, etc. They're all contending with the ramifications of yet another airline disaster, as was the way with, you know, airport films. This time, the plane, of course, crashes in the ocean, and the passengers get trapped in the plane underwater on the bottom of the seabed. Drama, of course, ensues. Lee, for his part, loved it. He was quoted as saying, A whole new world opened up for me as an actor. It was the Americanization of Christopher Lee. And in that way, this film was more valuable to me than anything else I've ever done. Wonderful special effects, very exciting, no expense spared, and all the principal roles cast were fine professional actors and actresses. This was my first picture with Jack Lemmon, who I've always admired, and it was exciting to be working with him. 1978 saw Lee star in the martial arts film Circle of Iron, which is going to be a future episode for sure, which starred David Carradine, James Coburn, Roddy McDowell, and Eli Wallach. For Disney, he starred in the sequel film Return from Witch Mountain with Betty Davis, Kim Richards, and Jack Sue. And he starred in the film Caravans with Anthony Quinn. Thanks in part to lobbying from horror fan and cast member Lorraine Newman, Lee was able to host an episode of Saturday Night Live that same year, which was a great opportunity, and it influenced him to a whole new generation of viewers. Plus, he got to be a part of a show that had Meatloaf on promoting Bat Out of Hell, and that didn't hurt when it came to getting eyes on screens. Some memorable sketches did ensue. Those included Lee hosting a series of horror anthologies, which included short films like Island of the Lost Luggage and The Thing That Wouldn't Leave, as well as Lee playing a role as the Green Reaper, and then later starring in a sketch where he helped stop a vampiric Nixon, as played by Dan Aykroyd, from going on to write his memoirs. 
At the time, his appearance was one of the highest-rated episodes for Saturday Night Live. And now, ladies and gentlemen, I would like you to meet Loaf. <laughs> I beg your pardon? What? Oh! I'm sorry. Yes, of course. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, meet love! <laughs> Being on SNL kicked off a number of comedic roles for Lee. He started by showing up in Steven Spielberg's 1979 war spoof, 1941. And he followed that up with 1980's Serial, starring Martin Mull and Tuesday Weld. That very same year, he also starred in Safari 3000 with David Carradine and Stockard Channing. He agreed to return to working for the Cannon Group to shoot a more comedic horror outing, starring in The House of Long Shadows, which we have touched upon in our previous episodes. He got to be in that film with his good friends Vincent Price, Peter Cushing, and John Carradine. It's just unfortunate that the film itself is sort of a mess and was a bomb. He worked steadily, though, throughout the 1980s, leaning more into comedies or into horror spoofs, showing up in things like The Return of Captain Invincible with Alan Arkin, The Howling 2, Your Sister's a Werewolf, that's so going to be a future episode, films like Jocks, The Return of the Musketeers, and Honeymoon Academy, just to name a few. With the 90s, though, Lee didn't exactly stop working but the roles were starting to become smaller, and life was beginning to change. He did have a memorable turn as the chief scientist in 1990's Gremlins 2, The New Batch for Joe Dante, and he ended up suffering through what would become 1994's Police Academy, Mission to Moscow. But quality pictures were harder to come by. He found himself doing more and more television work, and it was also during this same time that Lee was facing some personal hardship. Peter Cushing had been diagnosed with advanced prostate cancer in the early 1980s, but had managed for almost 12 years to keep his illness at bay without having to do invasive treatments and or chemotherapy. Lee got to see his good friend one more time in late May of 1994, getting together to record interviews for a new documentary that was being made about Hammer Films, Flesh and Blood, The Hammer Heritage of Horror. They got to sit together, they joked, they warmly reminisced, and they did joint interviews with the press, Lee holding his old friend up for support at times. Cushing would go on to pass away on August 11, 1994, at the age of 81, and Lee, who was on set filming, could not get back to attend his best friend's funeral. The process broke Lee, and he would often get prickly or testy with interviewers over the coming years who would bring up Cushing's death, not because he disliked speaking about Cushing over himself, but because the memories were just too painful. His pat answer would often be, he was really the most gentle and generous of men. I've often said that he died because he was too good for this world. Lee would then insist on a quick change of subject. 
Years later, after being able to properly process Cushing's death, Lee was able to articulate his feelings better on their relationship. I don't want to sound gloomy, but at some point in your lives, every one of you are going to notice that you have in your life one person, one friend for whom you care for very much. That person is so close to you that you're able to share some things only with them. For example, you can call that friend, and from the very first maniacal laugh or some other joke, you'll know who it is on the other end of that line. We used to do that with him so often. And then when that person is gone, there will be nothing like that in your life ever again. The same would happen when the subject of Dracula for interviews was brought up. Lee just didn't want to talk about it. He did the one film he liked, and then all those others that he didn't. And of course, that meant the conversation would then meander into Hammer films, and invariably into the subject of Cushing, and it would be all downhill from there. Can you blame him? They were fast friends. Their wives and children were friends. They were family. And for everyone who sees you and wants to ask you, how do you feel? Do you miss him? It's rough. Time gave Lee some distance and perspective, and later he could properly reminisce and tell positive stories about his friend and could further explain things. It was episode four, which he played this character with this wonderful name, the Grand Moff Tarkin, and played it, of course, extremely well and endeared himself to everybody. I remember ringing him up, these telephone conversations again, and saying, what is a Grand Moff Tarkin? He said, I haven't the remotest idea, dear boy. <laughs> dear fellow, dear fellow. He used to write me wonderful notes, dear fellow. And always at the end, may God's blessing be with you. Our, as ever, our love, Helen and Peter. Always. Even after Helen died? Oh, right up to the last time we spoke or you wrote. And I have a photograph. I have quite a few taken, of course, during that recording. And um, he is laughing. He's not putting it on. He is laughing. But there's a photograph of the two of us uh, at the entrance to the studio. I have it at home. I, I think it came out of a magazine. I don't have the original. And it really upsets me to look at it, because we're both standing in the doorway, and I'm pretty much the same height as I am now. I got my arm round him, and this was in 1994, which is, well, nearly 10 years ago. And I got my arm round him. And the top of his head is more or less just above the level of my shoulder. And he was six feet tall. He had shrunk so much, he'd been so desperately ill and borne it with such great courage. I mean, he became an institution at Whistable. His funeral took place in the main street. I wasn't in the country, so I couldn't go. And they've got a bench there named after him, and he used to go to the Tudor rooms or whatever they were called every single day for his lunch and possibly his dinner. And no. The Broughtons um, cooked his meals for him, kept an eye on him. 
They were wonderful. Uh, but every day I think he'd have lunch in the Tudor tea rooms. Mm. And people just come up and talk to him and he was quite happy about it. As the 90s began to draw to a close, Lee was able to secure the role that initially garnered a great deal of controversy for him. In the 1998 film, Jannah, Lee was cast to portray the life of Muhammad Ali Jannah, the founder and first governor general of the new nation of Pakistan. Lee's involvement with the film was initially decried by those who were taking umbrage both with Lee's previous performances, due to Dracula, and due to his Fu Manchu roles. Lee had to have bodyguards assigned to him due to the large number of death threats he was beginning to receive, but he took the role as playing the father of Pakistan very seriously, and he tried to portray Jannah with a level of dignity and grace. The film would go on to garner rave reviews from the Western press, and Lee personally considered it to be the best performance he gave of his career. Lee was suddenly back on the radar again, poised to have what would become a revival with the one-two punch of first working with Peter Jackson, playing the role of Saruman the White in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, starting in 2001, and he followed that up with the equally important role of Count Dooku in the Star Wars prequels starting the following year in 2002. It was during this time that Lee took on a relatively friendlier and more avuncular nature when he was interacting with members of the press, especially after word got around in 2003 about the quiet correction that occurred on the set of Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. It's been told many times since, and you could see them discuss it in the making of documentary for the film. But while filming, director Peter Jackson asked Lee to really give out a good death scream when it came time for his character to meet his demise, stabbed in the back by a former lieutenant. Lee, courteously and professionally, pointed out that he had intimate knowledge on how a real person reacts, the sounds they make when they're stabbed from behind, and he demonstrated it on set, not realizing that a hush had fallen over the members in attendance, realizing that Lee was deadly serious. And this brought on a renewed interest in Lee's service record during World War II. And for his part, while he was always modest about what he did, Lee would continuously travel with his SAS identification wherever he went to ensure that people would believe him when asked about his stories. The press, of course, had a field day with him at this time. It was revealed that he was decorated with awards from both the English, the Czech, the Yugoslavian, and the Polish governments for his service after the war, which prompted many to ask him to please tell stories, give information on the missions you went on. But Lee held firm because the British government had deemed his service record to be classified. Going forward during interviews, many an impressionable reporter would think they were trying to get Lee off the record, and they would ask him questions about his military past. 
Lee developed a rather fun tease that amused him, and he would repeat this many times over with many various members of the press. He would lean forward to the person asking him questions, and he would look around furtively and say, Can you keep a secret? And a hundred percent of the time, the reporters asking him would excitedly say something to the effect of, Oh, yes, of course! To which Lee would smile and say, So can I. And then he would sit back smugly in his chair, which would often elicit frustrated laughter from his audience. His career picked up, and now in his 80s, he was a steady fixture in Tim Burton films, taking on roles in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and The Corpse Bride, both in 2005, following that up with Sweeney Todd in 2007, starring in Alice in Wonderland as the Jabberwocky in 2010, and then showing up again in Dark Shadows in 2012. In 2009, Christopher Lee became Sir Christopher Lee as he was knighted as part of the Queen's birthday honors. Not skipping a beat, at the age of 88 in 2010, Lee released his first heavy metal album, Charlemagne by the Sword and the Cross. It was a concept metal album that told the history of the first emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, Lee's distant relative. At the age of 90, he did a follow-up album to that one, Charlemagne, Omens of Death. And at age 92, in 2014, he released an EP of covers that he ended up calling Metal Night, which includes Lee singing such songs as My Way and The Impossible Dream. Go listen to it on Spotify. He's great. Like it or not, though, health problems and his advanced age were becoming an issue. Lee was determined to work as long as he could, and even in spite of his frailty, a month before his own death, he was still scheduled to begin shooting a new film. Eventually, though, the Titan had to fall. And on the morning of June 7th, 2015, Christopher Lee was admitted to the Chelsea and Westminster Hospital for experiencing respiratory problems due to advanced heart failure. By 8.30 a.m. that morning, Christopher Lee passed on from this world. His wife delayed the public announcement for four days to allow their family to have proper time to grieve and process. But once the news hit, the outpouring was immediate. Roger Moore, who starred with Lee, on The Man with the Golden Gun, tweeted out, It's terribly sad when you lose an old friend, and Christopher Lee was one of my oldest. Tim Burton and George Lucas both paid their mutual respects, as well as members from his Lord of the Rings extended family. They all gave their own tributes. But actor Elijah Wood really summed it up succinctly. Lee was an icon, a towering human being with stories for days, and he will be profoundly missed. Lee, of course, lives on through his voluminous works. And indeed, if you're trying to play the Six Degrees of Separation game with Lee as a character actor, he's an amazing nexus point. He's just done so much for TV and film over the course of his life. Work that's continually being discovered by new generations of film fans as they get to see Lee perform what he does best in horror 
sci-fi, fantasy, dramas, and comedies. I do think it's safe to say, Lee's legacy has been secured in the annals of film history. And we all are the better for it. Are you looking for more? Well, there isn't much left around here, but that doesn't mean learning more about Christopher Lee has to stop for you. You can head on down to Amazon right now and you can purchase his autobiography, Tall, Dark, and Gruesome. Hey, look at that, for $25. Now, let me just throw it out there. He did write an updated version of that book in 2003, which has a bunch of additions and new stories based on his further work in the late 90s and early aughts, and that's entitled Lord of Misrule. But as of at least this recording, that book is currently out of print. You can find a lot of used copies on eBay, though, and I would highly tell people, yeah, go do it. It's great. Lee films have on occasion been given their due as special editions, but the man hasn't really been singled out to be the focus of his own collection yet. You can find a couple of cheap collections like Christopher Lee, Darkness Tolls, out there on DVD on Amazon, and that's going to net you some fun B-Fair offerings. That's going to give you stuff like The Satanic Rites of Dracula, Horror Express, Horror Hotel, and honestly, it's not bad. You get three movies for $5.45 on DVD. But you can find a number of his films boxed as being part of the Horror Classics collections, or various volumes of the Hammer Film Collection sub-offerings. Or if you really wanted to go out, you can purchase the Ultimate Hammer Collection set for $45.99, and that's going to give you 20 classic Hammer films all gussied up on Blu-ray, and they come with four featurettes, six film commentaries, and a 12-page guidebook. And even in buying that, you would only be scratching the surface for both the Hammer films and for Christopher Lee's work. But hey, don't worry. These are just a few examples of what's coming to you this month. So, in the meantime, what are you waiting for? Get out there. Go get yourself some amazing Christopher Lee swag today. So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you so much for joining us. We do hope you'll join us again next week as Tall, Dark, and Gruesome actually rolls on. If you like us, please give us a favorable review on Apple Podcast, hit that subscribe button, or hey, just do that wherever you're listening to us on. Please swing by, check out our website, lscep.com, where we have articles, episode links, and comics for you to peruse. We've also been recently added to Amazon Music, so if you have an account, simply say, Hey Alexa! play I Saw It on Linden Street today. We're also featured on Podchaser. That's a podcast database for listeners and creators alike. Find us there. Give us a follow and a review if you could, please. And hey, feel free to like any of the lists that we're a part of to continue to give us a boost in those rankings. The more reviews and those increased likes, that affects the marvelous algorithms that are out there, and that makes us more searchable. And thus, we can share more of these films with more people. And you want to do that, don't you? Of course you do. 
As always, if you'd like to get in touch with us, make a comment, ask a question, send us wonderful things, please email us at lindenstreetcinemaexperience at gmail.com. If you'd like to be even more personable, or you wish to contribute a segment in the sidecar, please send us an audio message by way of Anchor. That's a free and easy app to use. So until next time, take care out there. Wash your hands, wear a mask. Please stay healthy. And remember, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy out there, everybody. to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night. Good night.